Please pray with me. Father, we're here to hear the word of the living God, not any word that comes from man. So we ask you and beg you, O God, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would give us eyes to see the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would give us ears to hear the truth of your word, that you would give us a heart that's inflamed for the glory of God. We ask you this now, O God, not only for our benefit, but for your glory. Be with us now, we pray, in Christ. Amen. I was reading an article recently, and it was talking about kingdoms, kingdoms that are in the past. And they define kingdom as such. An earthly kingdom is a piece of land that is ruled by a king or a queen. A kingdom is often called a monarchy, which means that one person usually inheriting that position by birth or by marriage is the leader or the head of state. That's the definition of an earthly kingdom. This article goes on to say that the first kingdoms were established around 3000 BC, 3000 before Christ. In Kingir, also known as Sumer or Kemet, Maybe you're familiar with those names. Sumer was a kingdom that existed between the Tigris River and the Euphrates River, which is now modern-day Iraq. The Sumerians had their own language. They were an advanced people. They built massive canals and major construction projects. They were a very well-to-do people. They were advanced for their time. But if you read and continue to read the history of the Sumerians, their earthly kingdom lasted only 1,000 years. 1,000 years because in the year 2004 B.C., their kingdom crumbled. They were no longer the who's who, so to speak. The main point that I want to get across today for us is this, and you see this in your bulletin. Celebrate Jesus, the Savior, who inaugurates the kingdom of God. Celebrate Jesus, the Savior, who inaugurates the kingdom of God. In other words, to talk about the kingdom implies that there's a king. There is a kingdom. And many times we don't see that kingdom in this world with earthly eyes, but nevertheless, there is a very real kingdom. And the king of that kingdom is Jesus the Christ. And he rules and reigns now no matter what the news say. No matter what happens in the world, Jesus is the king who rules right here, right now. And so when we talk about a kingdom that's inaugurated, we understand the term inauguration. Every four years, there's an inauguration of a president. We see that or hear that as the presidential inauguration. They used to put their hand on the Bible. I don't know if they do that anymore. And they would raise their other hand and they would swear into office that they would uphold the responsibilities and duties as a president of the United States of America. So an inauguration marks the beginning of something new, a new policy, a new method, a new idea. And so we understand what inauguration is. It marks the beginning of something better 
And in this case, it's the kingdom of God. So we're in Luke chapter 5, verse 33 to 39, entitled, Celebrate the Messiah. Celebrate the Messiah, which is page 809 of the Black Pew Bible. But just to remind us quickly of the background in the context, this text today is really part two of the earlier text, or the earlier verses of verses 27 to 32. It's the same event. It's the same time frame. It's the same conversation. It's the same place. We're just in part two of this conversation. If you remember, Jesus sees a tax collector by the roadside. His name is Matthew or Levi. And he calls him sovereignly. He summons him. And what does Matthew do? He leaves everything. He gets up, leaves his former profession, and he follows Jesus Christ. And in spite of all that, there are Pharisees and scribes at the house of Matthew. Why? Because Matthew decided after he was converted and changed by God's grace in Christ that he would throw a dinner or host a dinner in honor of Jesus. And so he has this great meal and he invites certain individuals to partake of this meal. And if you remember, there were other tax collectors and other sinners. And if you know anything about tax collectors, they're considered offenders within the Jewish mindset. They're considered outsiders. They're considered dogs. They're considered traitors. Why? Because this Jewish tax collector has now, has now gone to go work for the oppressor, the enemy of the Jewish people, the Jewish state. And so Matthew, the tax collector, gets saved by God's grace, and he hosts this dinner, and he invites all the wrong people. He invites other tax collectors and sinners. I would argue he's actually inviting the right people. He's inviting the right people to see and savor Christ, to see the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. And the Pharisees asked the disciples at this dinner that's in the honor of Jesus, why do you all, why do you all disciples eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? See, this is the start of the problem at this dining table conversation. In other words, what the Pharisees and scribes were saying is that by being in the same room, by being in close proximity with other tax collectors and sinners means you are religiously defiled because you're not supposed to associate with those lowly people. And Jesus, knowing what's being discussed, he says this, which is a key verse in our text. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So in the eyes of Jesus, there are two groups at this dining room table. This first group are those who, will, who supposedly think that they will be accepted by God, by the holy, perfect God, based off of their subjective goodness and morality. The word subjective is you get to create a standard for yourself, and this person gets to create a standard for himself, and this person gets to create a standard. Based off of what? Based off of their own intelligence. Well, there's no such thing as a perfect standard created by man. 
They consider themselves morally good. They consider themselves religious. They consider themselves good citizens of the nation, productive. They contribute to society. Oh, and if they're the right ethnicity, God will accept us. They actually think that God will accept them and forgive them of all of their sins based, of all, based on all of that criteria. But that's not what the Bible says. This group is defined by Jesus as people who are not spiritually sick. In other words, they're not needy. They don't see their need of Jesus Christ. Why? Because they're too good. They're too good. Maybe a better way of saying it is they're prideful. Prideful people don't need salvation. Prideful people don't need Jesus. And so before we even get started in that, this sermon is that when we think about pride and being morally good and righteous, which is really self-righteousness, which is really self-pride, is that you? Is that me? Is that us? We need to evaluate our hearts in the light of Holy Scripture. Because if that is you and that is me, then what we have done without noticing it is that in our hearts we are secret Pharisees and scribes. I hope that's not us. And if that is us or someone in this room, you're in great danger. We need to seriously contemplate what the Word of God says. But Jesus, defining the second group of people at this dining room table, these are sinners. These are tax collectors. These are people who know that they have violated the law of God. They've offended God with their sin. They've sinned against God, their creator. They know that they deserve God's punishment. And yet God is gracious to them. God is kind to them. Matthew does not deserve to be saved from God's wrath. What Matthew deserves is what we all deserve. That's God's judgment apart from God's grace. And yet God was gracious to this tax collector, this traitor. See, that's good news for us. There's, there's a lot we can learn from this text already. That God is gracious to the lowliest of the low. Is that you? Then that's good news. Quit thinking that we have to clean the outside of the cup, but yet the inside of the cup is dirty and that would be acceptable if we could just clean the outside. What we need is to clean the inside. The problem is we can't clean the inside. Only God can. So this is good news for those who are sinners and they're looking for salvation. So this is the background and the context of our text for today. Again, I want to argue that we're to celebrate Jesus, the Savior, who inaugurates the kingdom of God. Verse 33. In verse 33, the question is, to fast or not to fast is the question. Read with me in verse 33. And they, talking about the Pharisees and the scribes, said to him, which is Jesus, the disciples of John fast often, and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours 
eats and drinks. Here's the problem. The Pharisees are the legalists. The Pharisees are the who's who when it comes to political influence and religious morality. Their strict adherence to the Old Testament law. They are legalists. And the scribes are individuals who are experts on the Old Testament law, to be exact, the Mosaic law. And the problem is this. John the Baptist, that's who they're referring to, his disciples eat and pray. Eating and praying is good in and of itself. But then the Pharisees are doing the exact same thing. They're eating and they're praying. And the Pharisees and the scribes look to the third group of individuals, the disciples of Jesus. And they say, there's something wrong here. How come you're not doing religiosity like us? How come you're not doing rituals and religious tradition like us? Yours continue, Jesus, your disciples continue to eat and drink. So when we think about this type of context and what is happening, this is the showdown at the OK Corral. This is God's grace against the establishment. That's what's happening here. So when we think of fast, in the Bible there's all sorts of fasts. There's an individual fast, there's corporate fasts. And the word fast simply means no food or drink for a set time frame for a religious duty. Again, a fast is no food or drink for a set time frame for a religious duty. It's within a religious context. That's why people would fast. However, when you think about all the fasts that are described in the Bible, in Luke chapter 5, the fast that the scribes and the Pharisees are doing, the disciples and the disciples of John the Baptist, does not fall in any of those categories. They are fasting simply to fast. They are fasting to show their religious zeal. Some scholars say that these Pharisees and scribes were so zealous that they would fast twice a week, and we see that in Luke 18, verse 12. And to be specific, they would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. Mondays and Thursdays, twice a week. Then when we look at texts like Zechariah chapter 7, the people of God were fasting in the Old Testament. But yet they were fasting with wrong intentions, wrong goals, wrong motives. Because God, the Lord, challenged the people through the prophet Zechariah. And he says, Zechariah, tell the people, when you fast, do you fast for my glory? Or do you fast for your own personal glory? So what can we learn here? We can learn that we can do a lot of religiosity. We can do a lot of religious ritual and tradition without the focus of God's glory. It's all about us. What do we want? How do we clean up ourselves so that we are acceptable to others and we're acceptable to God? That's the idea here. And even though Jesus fasts in Luke chapter 4, he did not command fast. He fasted, but he didn't command any fast. 
And he allowed his disciples to fast. That's Matthew chapter 6. Actually, the only fast that was commanded in the Old Testament is the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. That's Leviticus 16, by the way. Leviticus 16. The Day of Atonement is an annual fast for corporate Israel, for the people of God, for the sins of the nation. It was considered the holiest day of the Jewish calendar. It falls on the seventh month of the Hebrew calendar. The seventh month of the Hebrew calendar is September-October time frame. And the high priest, he would enter the most holy place. So if you remember the temple and how it was built and how it was designed, you would walk through the portico. The first room was called the holy place. And there was holy furniture in there. There were certain people that would go in there. But then the second room and the final room, once you go through the holy place, is the most holy place or the holiest of holies. And only one person can go into that room. That was on the Day of Atonement. The high priest. The high priest would go in there and he would offer a variety of sacrifices. If the high priest would go into that holiest of holies, on the wrong day, with no sacrifice, that person would die. Don't you approach the presence of the living, holy God without a sacrifice. And don't do it on the wrong day. And don't walk up casually into the presence of the holy God. Casualness leads to casualties. God is holy. And that's the purpose of the holy the holiest of the holies. And so there would be this scapegoat ceremony that the high priest would do. Basically, they would take this scapegoat and the high priest would take this scapegoat and he would put his hands on the head of this scapegoat and he would pray over this scapegoat and he would confess all the sins of the nation to God. And then once that was done, that scapegoat would be released into the wilderness and die. The picture is this, that the scapegoat would take the sins of God's people away from the people. In order for the people to be forgiven, in order for the people to be set free, there had to be a substitute, not any sacrifice. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. And that by praying with hands on the goat is symbolic of the sins of the people transferred to that goat. And the goat would take away the sins of the people. When we think about this, the goat is a type of Christ. The goat is a type of Christ. Jesus is the one who takes away our sins, who carries our sins away from us. And he actually goes outside the cities of the Jerusalem walls. He goes out into the wilderness, Gethsemane or Golgotha. And he dies by the hands of Gentiles, Romans, at the cross of Calvary. Jesus is the fulfillment of the scapegoat ceremony. Hebrews 13.11 talks about the holy sacrifice. 
And that holy sacrifice can and only will be Jesus. Hebrews 13.11 says this, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by who? The high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside of the camp. Verse 12, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Through his blood. The perfect sacrifice is Jesus. And Jesus is the one who was taken outside of the camp, outside of the city. So this day of atonement is the only fast commanded in the entire Old Testament. The holiest day of the Jewish calendar. And it is fulfilled in Christ. So when we think about fasting, that's the point of the discussion is that the Pharisees and the scribes are fasting, but yet they don't understand the ultimate goal of fast. Jesus is the ultimate goal of fast, according to the Old Testament. So they don't see this. They don't see this at all. But yet they are wondering, right? They're, they're looking to pick a fight. They're like, we fast and pray they fast and pray but why do your disciples jesus continue to eat and drink you're not fasting why well jesus presents his argument in verses 34 to 39 read with me in verse 34 and jesus said to them the pharisees and the scribes these legalists can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them so jesus counters their legalism by providing an analogy or illustration of how a wedding operates and he says here he says can these guests wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them imagine i think it's safe to say most of us or all of us have attended a wedding at some point in our lives, right? Have you ever been to a wedding where the ceremony was absolutely beautiful, God-glorifying, Christ-honoring? I would argue some of the best weddings I've ever officiated, I know Pastor Ed can say the same thing, is where Christ is the center of that wedding. And then after the vows and everything is official, then the next part is what? The reception. But can you imagine when you go to a reception that there's no food and there's no drink because everybody decides to fast at the wedding reception? That is definitely not a Filipino reception. There is always food and there's always drink. But can you imagine everybody decides we're going to fast at a wedding reception? That is the worst time to fast. And so Jesus, he asks a question in such a way that the only answer to the question is no. Emphatically, no. Jesus is saying, it's not time to fast. It's time to celebrate. It's time to party in a good way. That's what Jesus is saying. And so Jesus asks this question in such a way that the only answer is no. 
And the Bible uses the word bridegroom in the Western world. In America, we use groom. It's the same idea. A male is about to get committed or is committed to a female in marriage, through marriage. And because this is a glorious event, it's not time to fast, it's time to celebrate. In the Old Testament, the bridegroom language refers to God the Father. In the New Testament, the bridegroom language refers to Jesus the Christ. Jesus is the groom. This refers to the Messiah. And who are his friends? Because that's the question. He said, can the bridegroom fast while he's with his friends? Who are his friends? Who's at the dining room table? In the world's eyes, it's the worst kind of people. Tax collectors and sinners. But yet God in his grace has invited the lowliest of the low to the dining room table. So Jesus is the bridegroom. His friends are sinners of the worst kind. And they're called to celebrate, not fast. You know, there's a big difference, a major difference between empty religion and religious activity that, has, that does not have Christ at the center. There's a major difference between that and the Savior who has brought salvation through sacrifice. Salvation through sacrifice. And it's the sacrifice of himself, which leads to verse 35. He says there's a time to not fast, but also there's a time to fast. There's a time to fast. In verse 35, it says this. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those Days. Many scholars believe that this refers to future judgment or the death of Christ at the cross. If we think about the Gospels and we think about the earthly ministry and we think about where Jesus is right now in his earthly ministry and where the story is heading, the story is heading to an apex. The apex is the cross of Calvary. And so when we think about that is where the story is heading, the most natural reading and understanding of this text is that Jesus is going to die for his people. That's what it means within context. So verse 35, what that really is, is a veiled allusion to the crucifixion. A veiled allusion to the death of Christ. That's what it's referring to. Luke 9.22 says this, and this is Jesus saying this. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. In this text, Jesus says to his disciples, Who do the crowds say that I am? Who do the crowds say that I am? You remember the answer? They say, You're John the Baptist. Or you're Elijah. Or you're one of the Old Testament prophets. And then two verses later, Jesus turns the question to them. And he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds emphatically, you are the Christ of God. 
You are the Christ of God. This is a clear identity of who Jesus truly is. He's the promised Old Testament Messiah. He's the promised New Testament Christ. Hebrews 9.22 talks about Christ's death is our forgiveness. Hebrews 9.22, it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That was the purpose of Old Testament temple sacrifices. It gave a picture that blood is required to atone for the sins of God's people. But the problem is the blood of bulls and goats can never remove sin. It was just a picture of what would happen in the future. That the ultimate fulfillment of sacrifice is in Christ. That Christ is the perfect sacrifice. That his blood washes away the sins of his people. So without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. So, you know, we live in a culture in 2023 that everybody wants to go to heaven, but when they go to heaven, they don't want Jesus there. They want a nebulous, generalist, a nebulous general God that doesn't demand anything from them. They want a cultural Christianity. They want a Christless Christianity. They want a bloodless Christianity. See, biblical Christianity requires blood. There's no way around that. To be forgiven by the holy, living, righteous, just God, blood is required as payment. And so when we think about the blood of Jesus, that's exactly what sinners need to be forgiven. In other words, there is salvation through sacrifice. I've said it once, I'll say it a thousand times. There is salvation through sacrifice. Not just any sacrifice, it's the sacrifice of God's only Son. He is the one who took away our sins. He is the one who died for us. So as Christians, when we think about what Christ has done on our behalf, does that humble you anymore? Does that cause in you reverence and awe for the Savior anymore? Does it soften your heart anymore that Jesus lived and died for you and me? I've said it once, I'll say it a thousand times. Every time I think about what Christ has done for me, I want to crawl into the fetal position and just cry my eyes out. That's the beauty of the gospel. Because works can't get you there. Only the blood of Jesus by God's grace for those who repent and trust in him. So if you're not a Christian, the call for you today is to repent and trust in Jesus. To quit living for yourself. Quit putting these fake sacrifices before a holy, righteous God and think that God will accept those fake sacrifices. God desires obedience rather than sacrifice. Your only hope is Jesus. Your only hope is Jesus. And I want to encourage you, if you're not a Christian, trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. He's your only hope for salvation. But Jesus is saying in this text now that there's a time 
where the groom will be led away. And when that happens, it's time to fast. See, in the Bible, there were several reasons to fast. Many times it was for penitence. Many times it was to ask God for help in my situation or their situation, for God's help and aid. But many times fasting was for grief or grieving for the loss of someone or lamenting for the loss of someone. John 16, 20 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. This is Jesus speaking. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. But here's the beautiful part. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. That can only happen if Jesus is raised from the dead. That can only happen if Jesus is resurrected. Death cannot hold our Savior. Death cannot hold our Savior. The grave cannot contain the living Savior. And because we serve the risen Lord, we can have joy. That God's word is true and every man is a liar. That what God says will happen and has happened. God will save his people and God will take his people home. And God will have fellowship with his people as he promised. There's no thing and no one that's going to stop God from fulfilling his promise. The disciples' grief and weeping and lamenting will be turned to joy. And we can have joy. We have the same joy as these New Testament disciples. Then Jesus, in verse 36 through 39, he uses a parable. He uses a parable to explain old religion versus new religion. Old religion versus new religion. In verse 36, it says this. He also said to them or told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old, old wine, desires new. For he says the old is good. A parable is relatively a short narrative. A parable is a relatively short story that has symbolic meaning. And Jesus is explaining the truth by using these two examples about the old and new religion. The first example is about clothing or apparel or a garment, which involves sewing in this illustration. He says if you take a new garment and you cut it out from the rest of this new garment and you add it to an old garment not because the old garment has a hole it's just you take a new garment rip it out and put it on a new garment and you connect the two by sewing it together then you've ruined both in other words they're incompatible you cannot keep them together because to do so in this example, in this analogy, is to ruin the new garment and the old garment. Why? Because they don't match at all. They don't match at all. Recently, 
I think actually about a, a year ago, Brother Doug came up to me and he pulled me off to the side and he tapped me and he said, hey, there's something wrong with your elbow. And I was wearing my blue blazer at the time. It's a little sentimental to me because uh, when my father was a member of this church and he was active and, and involved and he was healthy, uh, this is a, a jacket that I wore um, before my father while I was doing ministry work. So it's sentimental. I mean, if I lose it today, no, no worries, right? But Doug was saying, hey, you got a hole in your elbow. And I go, oh, okay, thank you for showing me that. I can't see it, right? It's in a blind spot. So I've been wanting to get that fixed for a year. Maybe it's been two years, brother. I can't remember exactly. But then I tapped Nelly, hermana Nelly, and I said, sister, can you fix this? I got a patch. I think it's the right color. Can you fix this elbow? And she does, and it, it looks beautiful. It looks great. But if you put it up to your eyeballs, you can tell it doesn't match. You can tell that there's something wrong here if you put it close to your eyes. And that's the idea, that when you take old religion and new religion and you look at it clearly, the two are incompatible. Then Jesus uses the second example about wineskins. Wineskins were made from real animal skins or cloth. And what you would do is you would create basically a bottle or a flask that you would put wine into it, right? And that's how you would transport it. But when you take new wine and you put it into the wine skin, what happens is wine ferments, right? The gases start to expand, the wine tastes, or the wine uh, changes in taste, but there's pressure that's building within it. And it's stretching out this old wine skin. And what Jesus is saying, if you take new wine and you put it into an old wineskin that's already been expanded, meaning it's at its max capacity, what's going to happen is that old wineskin with new wine is going to suddenly explode, tear apart, rip up, and be destroyed. That's what Jesus is saying. What's the point? To put new wine in old wineskins, again, is incompatible. What we have here is Jesus versus the establishment. Jesus bringing salvation by God's grace to sinners versus a religion of works, personal works and personal deeds. One religion, the religion of man, is I'm going to work my way from the bottom all the way up to heaven, which never happens, by the way. And the religion that Jesus is representing is a religion by salvation, through sacrifice, by God's grace, by faith in the Savior that comes from the top of heaven all the way down to the lowliest of the lows. That's God's grace there. And so the Pharisees and the scribes, what they have is a religion of works, personal works. They have a religion of fasting and praying. But the problem with fasting and praying, fasting and praying is good in and of itself if it has Jesus at the center. But fasting and praying without any sort of focal point upon Jesus is dead religion. It's a religion that does not help tax collectors and sinners. There's no way for sinners to be forgiven by a religion of personal works and deeds. Why? Because there's no Savior. 
There's no mediator. There's no blood. Remember, there's salvation only through sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus. And if you remove the bloody cross, you have dead religion. You have dead religion. Blood is what's needed from the only Savior that God provides for anyone to be forgiven. Matthew 23, 23 says this, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. What are the weightier matters of the law? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. In this context, tithing represents compassion upon those who are dependent upon those who are leaders. Tithing is representative of compassion for those who are low, who are outsiders, who are ostracized. They're to take care of orphans and widows and sojourners. That's Numbers chapter 14. But the Pharisees and scribes, what they have in their dead religion is really hypocritical religion. Hypocritical religion. They're commanded to extend justice and mercy and faithfulness. We see that in Psalm 33, verse 5. We see that in Jeremiah 5, verse 1. But that's not what they're doing. They're not helping the people at all. One of the heresies that's very clear in the Bible is the heresy of legalism. Legalism. Legalism is the belief that a person can earn their way to heaven and be forgiven by God by their own personal works. That they could actually enter the so-called pearly gates in and of themselves on their own accord. I've said it once, i said it a thousand times, these Pharisees and scribes are legalists. They think they can earn their way into the kingdom of God. They take God's law, which is good if one uses it wisely, and they place it above God's grace. In other words, they go beyond what the scriptures say about God's law. And so they take God's law and they place it incorrectly above God's grace. But then the opposite heresy, and it's still a heresy, is antinomianism. Antinomianism. Anti is against and nomos is the law. Against the law. And what this heresy believes in is that the law of God has no bearing on the Christian today. Has zero influence on the Christian today. So legalism is on one hand, over here, is a heresy, and then you have on the other hand, over here, antinomianism. Both are wrong. The law is good if one uses it wisely. The law of God is good because it shows us what God requires in terms of holy living. If one uses it wisely. And what's happening here in Matthew 23 in this account is this, is that the Pharisees and scribes, these hypocrites, they are majoring on the minors. They are majoring on the minors. The Pharisees were focused on minor issues, but they neglected the heavier 
matters of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So how does that play into a church, a New Testament church like us? I want to quote J.I. Packer because he gives a succinct response to how legalism plays within the church. And he says this, quote, This tendency, referring to legalism, remains a constant threat to the church. We have a tendency to exalt to the supreme level of godliness whatever virtues we possess and downplay our vices as insignificant points. For example, I may view refraining from dancing as a great spiritual strength while considering my covetousness as a minor matter. There's a book by Jerry Bridges called Respectable Sins. I taught on this book several years ago. But what that book teaches is that we take sins like pride and anger and lust and lying and we hold that off to the side and that's considered respectable meaning we won't deal with these sins why because i'm focused on the major sins like murder i won't murder but i will lie do you see what's happening and so in this case we've taken certain virtues and we place it something that's minor and we make it major. So what does this have to do with new wine in old wineskins? It's this. The old religion of legalism is incompatible with the new religion of God's grace in Jesus Christ. It's incompatible. The two cannot work together. It's like oil and water. Verse 38 says this. And I'm paraphrasing this. New wine must be put into new wineskins. New with new, old with old. You cannot connect the two or mix the two. And so the new wine is the inauguration of something new. Something official. In other words, the king of the kingdom is here. And he's come to establish his kingdom. He started it with his first advent when he humiliated himself and condescended himself down to earth to breathe the dust of earth to take on flesh to live the life that we should have lived and died the most horrible death in human history when jesus came to earth this was the inauguration of the kingdom God's kingdom. It's the start of something new. This is salvation through sacrifice by God's grace in Jesus the Christ. That's what's happening. Jesus is confronting the establishment. Again, there's a major difference between old religion of Judaism, which is works-based, personal works-based, versus God's grace, which is christ based christ based so when we think about this dear saint which one applies to you right here right now do you have old religion or new religion 
Do you have a religion where you're, you're working your way up to heaven and hopefully you'll be forgiven? Or do you have new religion where you see your need for the Savior? That you can never work your way to heaven on your best religious day and you need God's help and God has provided help in His Son, the Savior, the mediator, the only mediator between God and man. Do you see your need for Christ? Because those who are spiritually healthy don't need a doctor. It's those who are spiritually sick who need a doctor, or in this case, a Savior. Verse 39, those who partake of the old, when they do, will say this, the old is good. The old is good. The old is better. The old is acceptable for those who partake of the old wine or the old religion. It's amazing that the Pharisees who are strict adherents to Old Testament law, who want to fast and want to pray, don't see God before their own very eyes. They don't see the forest from the trees or the trees from the forest. They just want to look good in front of people. They want to be accepted by the who's who. They want to have power and prestige and influence over other people. But yet, the thing that they need is right in front of them, Jesus the Savior. And they don't see Jesus for who he truly is. It's amazing that these professionals of religion can't see the ultimate fulfillment of the law and fasting right before their eyes. Why? Because they're spiritually blind. God must take off the spiritual blinders from their eyes. God must do that in Him alone. So what is the kingdom? What is the kingdom? One Christian answers it this way, quote, Most would generally agree that Christ's kingdom began in some way with His first coming. It continues to advance as His people live the gospel message throughout the world. However, it will not realize its ultimate completion until he returns. So the kingdom of God is here right now. And the kingdom of God is most clearly seen on earth when Christians in a church honor Christ and live for Christ and submit their will under God's will. That's where the kingdom of God and his rule and reign is most clearly seen on earth. But the full fulfillment of God's kingdom is when Jesus comes back. And when Jesus comes back, it will be complete. It will be whole. It will be final. So when we think that Jesus will reign in the future, no, 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 no. According to Matthew 28, he rules right now. It, the problem with Matthew 28 is we don't like the way he's ruling and reigning right now. We want to see things fixed right now. But if you think about it, we have an opportunity to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with others. Because once we get promoted in glory, there's one thing we won't be doing. We won't be sharing the gospel anymore. We're face to face with our God and maker. And as Christians, when we think about what God has done for us, we say amen. Do we not? We say amen. Jesus is the king of the kingdom and he rules right now he will not fully rule per se he rules now 
But he will fully reign at his second coming. But he fully reigns right now. I know that's confusing. But he reigns right now. And the church is to live out the gospel. The church is to live out the gospel. So as I close, when we think about this entire event of Luke chapter 5, this is what we come up with. We learn about biblical repentance. It's a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of disposition, a change of affection, a change of love. But also we learn about death. The death of who? Christ. Christ, the crucifixion of Christ. Blood is required in order for us to be forgiven, which leads to a new religion, if I could say it that way. Salvation through sacrifice. Salvation through sacrifice by God's grace. One of the problems in the New Testament church, and it'll apply to us, and it'll apply until Jesus comes back, is legalism. One of the other problems is antinomianism. Those two will always be a problem in the New Testament church. We need to be mindful of that, dear Christian. And the only way into this new kingdom is through the king. The question is, have you bowed your heart to the new king? You cannot enter the new kingdom without bowing to the new king. Let me use this sorry illustration. Today is Super Bowl Sunday. I would argue it's the Lord's Day. People have argued with me, it's a national holiday. Can we finish early? No. It's the Lord's Day. And I will continue to say that as long as it gives me air in my lungs. But the fact of the matter is, imagine we decide to go to the Super Bowl, wherever the Super Bowl is. I just found out who played in the Super Bowl 48 hours ago. That should tell you something. But we didn't pay for the ticket, but we took a piece of paper and a Crayola, and we wrote down our name on this ticket in seat number G45. And we take it to the front entrance, and we see the usher, and we're like, we're here for the Super Bowl. You know what they would do? You know how they would respond? You're a third grader with this fake ticket. You think you could come into the Super Bowl on your own dime, in your own way, in your own strength, in your own intellect? No, no, no. You got to play by the rules, so to speak. You want to get into the kingdom? You bow to the king. You bow to the king. So, if you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you. There's no better time to repent and trust in Jesus than right here, right now. Right here, right now. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not upon your own understanding. And He will make your path straight by His grace, by the aid of the Spirit. If you got questions about biblical Christianity and the gospel, what it means to be a Christian, I hope you would talk to one of the pastors or talk to somebody next to you. We're talking about life and death, dear people. Sermon in a sentence. As Christians who have placed our trust in Jesus Christ, we have much to celebrate and express joy because Jesus is our King. Jesus is our King. And we are in his kingdom right now. You will not have, per se, in the future eternal life if you believe right here, right now. 
you have eternal life. If you have eternal life right now, that means you're in the kingdom right now. Now live for Jesus. And we praise God that He has given us new religion in Christ. We're not saved by old religion. We're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, for God's glory alone, and all of God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, you are all glorious, and you're worthy to be praised by every people, every nation, every tongue around the globe, and you will save your people. And we're so grateful that we are counted amongst the innumerable millions upon millions of your elect that you've called into salvation by your grace and kindness and mercy. So, Lord, we heard a hard word, and we ask you, O God, that you would help us to be faithful to you by your grace, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, that you would remind us from day to day that Christ is all and Christ is enough. And all God's people said, Amen.